unpacking a little portion of an ancient letter written by one of the earliest leaders in the Christian church, a man named James, to some of his friends who had moved, likely moved from Jerusalem, where James was probably living, into other parts of the Roman Empire, maybe running for their lives from persecution that had come for them, and who had started to experience, in these far-flung settings, started to experience the kind of tensions and challenges that we experience in our Christian lives. Had started to experience the gap between the things Jesus did and Jesus called for and what they were seeing show up in their own lives. James wrote to them as their pastor to try to help them see what effect Jesus' work for them should have on the way they treat one another. It's a, it's a letter that's written to give wisdom. That's why we're studying it together this, this uh, fall. All year long, we've been trying to learn from the wisdom literature of the Bible, these parts of the Bible that are meant to help us see how to live well in the world. And James is a great example of that. Uh, This morning, James gets straight to the point, and he gets straight at us. Because James is writing to give wisdom for handling people problems. James, I guess, had gotten word that some of these churches where his friends had moved off to, these churches that they had formed, were starting to show the same kind of divisions, the same kind of infighting and bitterness that shows up pretty much anywhere any group of humans gets together. That shows up when selfish people start hanging out together. And James is writing to tell them, you don't get to be with Jesus and fight with one another like this. And this is James is talking directly to us too, right? I don't even have to ask you guys for a show of hands for who has people problems in their lives right now. I think it's a safe bet that each one of you woke up this morning into a world where pretty much every day is going to involve you in some kind of tension with the people in your lives. Could be your parents and a strained relationship with them, other family members. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your long-term friends. Or your co-workers that you just don't enjoy spending so much time with. Maybe it's fellow students or even fellow church members. Navigating people problems takes incredible wisdom that doesn't come naturally to us. That's why what James writes in the section we're going to unpack this morning is such a gift to us. He knows that. So he writes to clarify for us what's at stake in our people problems. And what he has to say, it's helpful, it's challenging, it's encouraging, but it's also really surprising. What I want to do this morning, really quickly, is walk through three unfolding steps into James' words to us about how to handle people problems. Three surprising truths that James points us to that are always involved in all of our problems with other people. Now, I want to first read this text. It's a short one. I want to invite you to stand in honor of God's word while I do. I'm going to read from James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. And if you, if you have a worship guide, you should have received one. You can follow along the steps I'm going to be taking this morning on a page in your worship guide that, that you can also use to take notes or raise questions that you might like to talk about with me after the sermon. This is the word of the Lord from James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions 
are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. The first truth that James points us to here is the surprising seriousness of our people problems. The surprising seriousness of our people problems. I think the first thing we've got to notice before we get too far is, is how seriously James treats this issue and not so much what James has to say about our people problems. We're going to get there with most of our time this morning. I think before we get there, we need to, we need to notice how he says what he says about our people problems. And this is maybe a little bit lost on you, depending on what translation you're using. It's lost a little bit in the translation I just read from. James has chosen to use words of warfare to describe our people problems. Most of the translators who've captured original Greek words in these English words that we just read together, most of them think James is using metaphors where he's He's using the images of war to describe problems among people. They're not literally fighting with one another. And so they've translated the words to, to reflect that. They've used quarrel and fight instead of the literal words for war and battle. And, and in fact, these words are almost never used as a metaphor. In James' time, they were almost always used for literal wars, Literal battles, kind of in the same way today. So, so today we use war and battle as a metaphor all the time. You know, there's the, we talk about a difficult college football game as a war, right? Or we talk about the battle for the presidency that's going on right now. We do that more than these words would have been used like that in James' time. I think maybe a better way to get the punchiness or the, the shock value of these words is that we don't use terror metaphorically very often, do we? Images of terrorism are vivid on our minds. And close in our experience. And so if you ever did use terror as a metaphor. If you ever did say that father is terrorizing his children. There's a shock value to that word, isn't it? James is using words that would have that kind of shock value to the people who are hearing them. It's why he says, it's why he refers to murder in verse 2. And there the translator in my version went straight for it. I don't think, most people don't think that the the original audience here was actually killing one another. But that James wanted to shake them up by choosing words that they weren't expecting that raised the bar on the significance of what was going on in their communities. He's using it, in other words, a lot like Jesus used similar images in his most famous sermon. So the Gospel of Matthew captures this teaching that Jesus gave to his followers before he was killed, a sermon that we often call the Sermon on the Mount. And in that sermon, Jesus says, you think you're okay on the Ten Commandments because you haven't actually murdered someone. But I tell you, when you have anger in your heart for your brother, that's murder. God sees to the heart, and he sees that the same thing that leads to murder leads to your anger in your heart towards your brother. And you're guilty of the same crime in God's eyes. Or he says of lust. Maybe you haven't actually slept with that woman. Maybe you haven't actually committed adultery. But if you've lusted, 
well, then you're guilty of the same thing in the eyes of God. So, so if we took that same principle here, James is using warfare, he's using battles, he's using murder to talk about their conflicts with one another. What's he using those words for? I think what he's trying to do is show them that the same thing that makes it possible for one human to kill another in war, in murder, in battle, whatever the context, has to happen in your heart for you to fight with one another in your community. And what has to happen is this. You have to start seeing that other person as fundamentally different from you, as an other, as an enemy, as a threat to be neutralized. You have to be willing, in other words, to inflict pain on that person that you would never want inflicted on you. One of my favorite books that I came across in graduate school is a study of how war works, what has to happen in the human mind, what, what switch has to be flipped before killing is possible on that scale, just to make it possible. This, this study by a, a, a Harvard scholar named Elaine Scarry framed around this question. She asked, what, by what perceptual process, how do we come to see by what perceptual process does it come about that one human being can stand beside another human being in agonizing pain and not know it? Not know it to the point where he himself inflicts it. That's war. And James is saying the same thing is going on in your conflicts with one another. You have to be able to stand beside this person you're fighting with and not even know their pain not owe it to the point where you yourself are inflicting pain on them. They have to be fundamentally other than you. In other words, you have to flip on its head one of the fundamental precepts of the law, that you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. You're supposed to feel what they feel. You're supposed to enter into their world. You're supposed to take on a perception that joins you to them. And when you fight, that shuts down. What James is doing then is trying to help us see the seriousness of what's at stake in our people problems. He's trying to shake us out of apathy and warn us that in our conflicts with one another, what God sees is not different from what he sees in war and in murder. He takes it that seriously. So I wonder, friends, are you, are you just, have you gotten to the point where you just sort of expect to have a big part of your life dominated by problems with other people? Have you just gotten used to being frustrated a lot by people? To being often hurt by other people? To being disappointed often by other people? put off by things that other people do or say. Maybe find yourself talking routinely about problems with other people. If so, if it's, if it's just taken on a part of your normal and been accepted by you as just as normal as waking up and eating breakfast, then James first wants to shake you out of that drowsiness. And show you that it is not okay with 
God. War is a normal part of human experience too. But it is tragic. It's destructive. And God hates our conflicts. Now, you might be saying at this point, get off my back. I can't help it that I've got all these people problems. I've got a lot of problem people in my life. That's our natural reaction, what James is saying. You can't help it when you have people problems if the people in your life are such problems. If people in your life are always hard to deal with, always doing you wrong, always neglecting you or hurting you. And this is where James pushes back once again with his second surprising truth that he wants us to see this morning. He pushes back there on our natural built-in defense mechanism against this challenge. We want to say our people problems are out there. Those are our people problems. James says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? And answers his own question. Is it not this? That your passions or desires are at war within you? James traces the root of our people problems not simply to the people in our lives, but to the passions in our hearts. Our problems are in us. Now we need to qualify this, okay? He is not saying that no one ever gets hurt by someone else in their life. He isn't saying that abuse isn't a real thing. That sometimes parents don't love their children in the way that they ought to. That sometimes people really are hard to work with. That, 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 people, don't, that people do often, in reality, neglect their friendships or forget to love someone in a way that that person receives love. Those things are all true. James just doesn't want us to focus there. James knows that we're all really quick to focus on the problems outside of us. He wants to shake us awake to see the problems inside of us where he wants to see the gospel do its work. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. What causes these fights? Your passions at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. What he's saying is that the things we want in life, our passions, our desires, the things we're, out, we're after, are all mixed up. They're conflicted. And then they conflict with the things that other people are after, all of their desires. So there's all this friction that happens. But that if you trace it to its root, when we have problems with other people, somewhere in there is the simple fact that we want something we're not getting. That our lives are aimed at something we haven't been able to grasp yet. What James is telling us is that we can't afford to see our hearts, the desires that are in us, as these neutral things that just get operated on, like a robot by forces outside of us, as simply victims of the things that happen to us. But actually, our hearts are active. They're constantly desiring things. They're constantly wanting and running out after things. They're part of this as actors, not just as recipients of of influences from the outside. 
So yes, according to the Bible, what happens to us is often terrible. People do hurt one another in ways that are large and small. People belittle one another. They, they sometimes offer shameful discipline from parents to withheld affection among friends to outright verbal and even physical abuse. People do abandon others, betray others, use and abuse others. That happens. God always sees it. God always hates it. And God has promised that at, there is a day coming where he will wipe away every tear where he will put an end to all sorrow and where everything will be made new. God has promises that speak directly to the things done to us. But the Bible's view of what's wrong in the world and in us is more nuanced than that. We've got to focus not just on what's done to us, but on our heart as an internal battleground of desires. So friends, just to get really practical here for a second, I think take the people problems that you're thinking about, right? You've got them. What are they? What's that relationship? What makes it hard? Take those people problems. And now think about what you're feeling in that problem, in that relationship where there's tension. What is it that you're feeling in it? Are you feeling anger or hurt or disappointment? Maybe envy? What are you feeling? Well, then don't leave it there. The next thing you want to ask is, what's behind the feeling? Or to put James' terms on it, what desire do you have that you're not seeing filled? What is it that you want or covet but cannot obtain? Could it be maybe that you're angry because you want control in a situation that you can't control? That's where my anger typically comes from. Could it be that you're hurt because of how badly you want approval that you haven't received from someone. Maybe how badly you want to be valued by someone who doesn't seem to value you. Are you disappointed because you have expectations that aren't being met by this someone? Maybe you want to be loved in a way that's sensitive, in a way that suits how you feel or experience love well. And a love that's tailored to you. And you aren't being loved that way. Do you envy maybe because someone else has the looks that you want. Or the reputation. Or the success. Or the stuff. Or the life that you want but don't have. What is it that you want that you don't have. That's showing up in this people problem. I think James is telling us that there is a, that a, a big step, a big step forward towards peace in our people problems comes from being willing to go deeper in self-awareness, to direct our attention from what's going on outside us, from what's being done to us, inward at what we want but don't have, to teach ourselves to be aware of that and to bring that to him. That's the third, here we go to the third and final Surprising truth in James' words to us this morning. The surprising solution to our people problems. The surprising solution. So let's say you're just buying all of this hook, line, and sinker. You're willing to start looking inside you to figure out what's going on 
in your people problems. What are you going to do about it? I think James surprises us here once again. His solution is so simple. He says to ask God. Verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. You see his logic here? You guys are fighting with one another. There's tension in your relationships. And the reason is your desires are at war within you. What desires do you have that aren't getting filled? Once you've recognized what you want and don't have, step three, the next step, you just ask them for it. You don't demand it of the person that you're in conflict with. You don't seek it through some other source. You don't supplement or let your desires run after some other path. You go to him for it. We, so, so here's how we would normally, normally answer James' rhetorical question here. Why don't you have the things that you want? I don't have them because my parents never gave it to me. Or because, or because my advisor is clueless. Or because... My boss has taken it away from me. I don't have because my kids just keep holding me back. I don't have because my friends aren't paying attention to me, to what I need. That's how we would answer that question. Why don't you have? James says, no. You don't have because you don't ask. In other words, let's put a different set of words on this. In other words, your horizontal problems with people are really just symptoms of a vertical problem in your relationship with God. You've got the people problems you do, or those people problems are showing up and having the effect on you that they're having because you're focused more on horizontal issues with other people than on the vertical issues of your relationship with God. Again, again, let's qualify this at every step. He's not saying that there aren't real outside pressures working on you, that people might really be doing bad things to you. He's saying that if you want to survive in a relationship where someone is treating you poorly, part of that process has got to be seeing why you're responding the way you are to what's happening and then taking that response, not directly to that person necessarily, but to God. That The most important relationship for you solving problems in your people relationships is your relationship with him. There's a breakdown there that leads to the breakdowns in our horizontal relationships. Sometimes we just think more about other people and what we want and aren't getting from them than we think about God and what he offers and what he's doing with us and what he's doing in our relationships with other people. So once you recognize what you want, ask God for it. Don't try to filter it. Don't try to, on your own, white, through your own strength, white-knuckle a replacement for what you want. Don't start there. Start by starting where any child who knows that he or she is well-loved would begin. Our children know that they can come to us and be honest, even if their requests are crazy. They just ask because they know they're cared for. And that's the way God wants us to relate to him. Once you realize what you want, ask him for it without fear. It's what Jesus made possible. Don't worry about whether it's good or not, mature or immature, helpful or harmful. Just ask him. Put, the, put your parent, 
put your father into the reality of your life, basically. That's what our kids do. They take whatever crisis has happened, however small it might be, and they put their parents right there in the middle of it by asking them. God wants that from us. So start there and then go a step further. James has taken us one step further toward a solution. The surprising solution to the people problems we have is to go to God with them. That starts by just being honest with him, by just asking for what we want. But it doesn't end there. The next thing James points us to here under this surprising solution is that we, we really do need to have what we want reoriented. It does need to be changed. So when we ask God, being honest, just taking what we want straight to him, we need to be willing to have him through that process shift what we want. We need to not believe that our desires as they are are neutral and good or, or, or actually good. That sometimes what we want needs to be shifted. James says this in verse 3. You ask and don't receive. Sometimes you may be honest with God, go straight to him with what you want, and you still don't get it. But that's because you ask wrongly. You ask in a way that's self-focused. You ask in a way that would harm you ultimately, and God's not willing to just give you anything you want. Start by being honest, but know that through the process, God wants to reshape what you want, and through it, reshape you. Just like a father who loves his children, who knows better than they do what they need, who knows better than they do sometimes that what they think they need isn't what they need. So God is always working to guide us and grow us into maturity as we relate to him. I love, uh, I love the way one writer puts this. God's primary goal, this writer says, is not that I would experience present personal happiness. That's not easy to hear, is it? That's my goal. Present personal happiness, not always God's goal. Rather, continue from this writer, the very relationships with which I struggle and the difficult situations from which I would like to escape are the instruments he's using to produce the heart change that will result in a life that is fruitful to his glory. Did you get that? God isn't necessarily committed to making us happy right now. What he is committed to is reshaping all of his children into the image of Jesus, to chipping away the things in their lives that are keeping them from resting fully and freely on him. He is committed to making us holy before he's committed to making us happy. And sometimes, as his children, I don't think it's an overstatement to say all the time that he allows problems, even painful ones, into our relationships. What he is doing, his agenda in those problems is to work us into the image of Jesus to make us ready. So in a conflict, what we're typically focused on is what the other person needs to change or on what we want to see happen to the relationship and when we want to see that happen and what it has to look like. And we're not wrong to consider those things. Nothing James is saying is, is meant to take off the table good, clear communication about conflict with the person you're in conflict with. Don't hear him saying that. What he's saying, though, is that as you pray about what you've realized you want and don't have, 
as you pray about the tension in your relationships, what you want to do is lean into what God has already told you He's doing in your life. What He's told you He's doing in your life is chipping away all of your self-reliance, all of your desires to be loved by the things God has made more than you desire to be loved by the God who made you. What He's chipping away is all of your desires that run out towards some sort of glory that doesn't come from Him. What He wants to do is leave you happy and content as His children who know you can trust Him. In your prayer over your people problems, the one you're the ones you're thinking of right now, what you want to pray to him is that whatever comes of it, however long it may take, that he would build up in you through it a deeper affection for Christ and his promises to you, a more full display in your life of his work in you so that your love, even for the people who are are hurting you or who are hard for you to deal with, reflects the love of Jesus for those who were hurting him and hard to deal with? You want to pray for a better reflection of the image of Jesus, whatever that has to look like in your people problems. Because friends, ultimately, he is weaving a story. God is weaving a story that stretches over all of time and over all the earth. And he is building your life into that story. And the theme of that story is peace. Peace is what has been lost by our conflicting desires. Peace is what the prophets promised to Israel in the Old Testament. Some of the most beautiful prophecies, promises of what was to come, were promises of peace. Think of, I think of the image of Isaiah and of Micah, of a time when people would take their swords and their spears, the things they had been using to hack at one another, and they would beat them into plows, into pruning hooks, into into instruments of, of fruitfulness and growth and vitality. He promised peace was coming. And on the night that Jesus was born, what was announced by the angels? But peace, peace on earth, goodwill on men. And Jesus grew. He grew strong. He grew in understanding. He grew in the practice of holiness. And as he grew, the writer to Hebrews tells us that he went through every temptation any one of us will ever face. He went through the war of passions inside of him that bubbles up into so many of our conflicts and never more clearly than in one of the gospel's most penetrating, powerful stories, the story of Jesus on the night that he was betrayed Just before he was arrested, Jesus was in a garden called Gethsemane. He knew that those who were coming for his life were bearing down on him. Maybe even by this time he could see the torches of the men who were coming. He could hear the clanking of their armor, of their swords, of their spears, not beat into plowshares or pruning hooks, but sharpened and made ready for him. And in the garden that night, facing what he knew was coming, a separation from the the Father for whom he had lived every day of his life, the Father who was life to Him, whose will He had come to do, facing separation from Him. In the garden that night, Jesus prayed to Him, let this cup pass from Me. He was human. 
He knew what it was to have instinctive desires. He was honest with God. He took those desires straight to him. He wanted something he didn't yet have. And he just brought it to his father because he loves his father and he knows his father loves him, so he's honest. But when he comes to his father, he doesn't leave it with what he wants. He's also willing to bend what he wants, his desires, towards his father's will. Not what I will, father, but what you will, your will, be done. And that night he was arrested. Later on he would be killed and he would rise again as a promise to anyone who will hear it. A promise that Paul describes in the language of peacemaking. On his cross Jesus has broken down the wall of hostility. A wall that had separated us from the God who made us. A wall that separates us from each other. A wall that shows up Every time any one of us has something against anyone else, that's the wall that Jesus Christ on his cross came to tear down to the ground. So who are we, friends, as recipients of that work, as those who live in that peace, who are we to let our conflicts with one another stand? We are the people of the promise Jesus made. The promise he made possible by his own peacemaking work. And we are called by his power to make peace. Because that's the Lord that we serve. Our prince is the prince of peace. And we are his people. God help us to show the beauty of a peace that has been won for us and is now taking shape in us. Help us to be willing to admit what we're bringing to our problems, to be clear and wise in the way we understand what's going on in our hearts, and to be willing to lay down our arms. I pray that you would make our church a community of people who love one another peacefully in a way that is unusual a way that is beautiful and noteworthy to people who see it from the outside, a way that recommends Jesus and the power of his work. That community is not possible for for us. We know from experience that we just can't do it. So we pray to you now that by your power, you would make this true in us. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.